right, you loyal, you intrepid hurly-burlyites. Today on the pod, a guest who makes me feel like we're doing something right around here at Air Quotes Media, or at least not altogether wrong. That's because she keeps coming back to the show pretty much every time we ask her. Five times now. And that makes her the all-time record holder for appearances, taking her out of a tie with Peter Weltman. You're the one! I want all our listeners to know I've offered her the coveted position as Hurley Burley in-house economist, but she prefers to remain in her current job, global chief economist and strategist at Manulife Financial. Francis Donald is with us today. Hey, Francis, how are you? Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. Where's your puppy? My, are we talking about my new kid or my actual dog? Your actual dog. You had my him on the show. My actual dog. You know what? I'm in office today. I don't know if the world is returning after the COVID shock. I am in office. Unfortunately, did not bring my dog, but maybe we could address some of those policies. Uh, absolutely. Because it really added to the show last time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try to find something additive for you today. <laughs> okay. So today we're going to do a tour of most of the economic hot button issues. What's the outlook for the next 18 months? Canadian fiscal policy and the role of low deficits, immigration in the economy, and why is there a shortage of skilled trades to build the housing we so desperately need? Francis, welcome back to the Hurley Burley. And thanks for dismissing the fact that we're a bunch of rubes five times in a row now. Happy to be here, Dave. <laughs> hey, listen, just before we get started, look what I found the other day in a convenience store. An air freshener. A Toronto so Maple Leafs air Maple freshener. Yeah. I actually forgot that this podcast is videoed, so I'm. it's very casual Tuesday for me, but yeah. I feel that I know many of your listeners listen on the podcast, so I'm going to, I should do some descriptive text for exactly. the really weird object. I feel like I'm on a Jimmy Fallon show where you have to describe the weird thing behind you to a celebrity and hope they guess it. I am not as funny as Jimmy Fallon, but this Toronto Maple Leafs air conditioner, air freshener makes me laugh. So I don't know what odor it is, but I'm certain <laughs> it works better in the fall than in the spring. It probably smells like the mudroom at my house with my <laughs> two boys and my husband. So I, if I could package that and make a profit, maybe I could retire from being an economist. Do you want to do that? Make air fresheners? No, retire from being an economist. Oh, heck, anything for a profit. Right. Okay. I got more to give, Dave. I got more to give. We don't have enough economists in this country, actually. I know we probably hear from them all the time, but... Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty small group of people who talk about the economy and, uh, I think we need more. So, um, maybe those who make air fresheners should retire from that and consider a career in economics, get some different perspectives over here. Or maybe that's what the temporary foreign workers program is for. I mean, I, all of views and backgrounds are needed. We've got, uh, we've got a lot of the, the same things that are being said over and over, not just this year, but for the fat past 40 years. And I, for one, think maybe we need to reconsider some of them. All right. Well, let's break some eggs. Okay. Okay. So let's start with what are the short-term prospects for the Canadian economy? I think in political terms, and I think in terms of electoral timeframes. So over the next 18 months, what do you see happening? So I don't think in terms of political timeframes, Dave. I I don't understand politics. I don't um, 
I'm not a policy economist. I know most of the time you have policy economists. I'm a financial economist. Most of what I do is look at the economy and figure out what does it mean for financial markets and how do we trade it? So I, I have a very different perspective. And I think so. I feel bad. Sometimes I feel like I come lacking to this show. But let's just set the scene here. Okay. I globally am trading markets, stocks and bonds. That's, that's my core job every day. Um, when we look at Canada, I'm going to say in the next 12 months, because most of the time we develop 12-month outlooks, it's a very challenging economic environment. We have a formal recession in our forecast, although I hate the term and I don't even know why we use it. just means two quarters of negative GDP, which is a invented technical term that economists use. It may not even be the best best way to describe what a recession is. In fact, there are already metrics in Canada that suggest we're already in the recession. Uh, but you know, slowing growth and the the big reason for that is just we've gone from you know the easiest monetary policy ever to the tightest uh, by many measures, not all. Uh, some of the the tightest and fastest increase in interest rates that we've ever seen, and we're not going to escape the pain of that. In fact, that's the point of it. Um, and so we have a, a difficult year in 2024. We do have a rise in the unemployment rate. However, however, um, this is not your standard economy. If you want to think in terms of political timelines, it's not the economy it was in October of 2015. It's not the economy that existed in the 1990s when uh, many very uh, influential economists really made their mark by talking about things like deficits. And we are still in a environment where there are labor shortages globally, not just in Canada. The other thing I would say is it's very tempting as Canadians, and I am a very proud Canadian, to, um, to think that what's happening here is a Canadian affliction. But Canada is suffering through pretty much identical, with the exception of housing, challenges as most other developed markets around the entire world, with some margin on either side because of some unique characteristics that exist. So what Canada is experiencing in 2024, which will be a painful economic year, is largely a, a because of many of these global factors, and it's very difficult to resolve domestically because of that. Um, and so we need to be cautious about trying to throw policy prescriptions and this is why this happened, um, you know, at Canadians themselves, whether it's Canadian businesses or policymakers, et cetera, because much of what's happening here is us being caught in the turbine that is a massive global economic transformation and a variety of massive global problems. So where do you, where do you see the interest rate inflation thing happening over the course of the next 12 months. Well, first of all, before we get to that, I do want to ask you, you said a technical recession. Is the Bank of Canada delivering the promised soft landing? Because I don't hear people expecting a recession like the ones that ended previous battles against inflation, whether it be in the 80s or in the uh, 90s, in which the economy literally came to a grinding halt. Okay, so... Let's let's do some let's do some inside baseball here, okay, Dave? When you are an economist, calling for a recession is a really big deal, particularly if you're in the private sector. 
because for most of us, calling for a recession means where we're employed for many uh, becomes a more challenging environment. If you work in financial markets, calling for a recession or being bearish is often considered a career limiting move mm. because if you're wrong, you've missed massive upside for the people whose money you're entrusted with. And this is critical because often we think, oh, you know, traders, most of the large financial players in this country who are managing assets are managing people's retirements. Mm -hmm. And I take that very seriously as part of my job. And I'll just you. go on TV and say anything. We manage people's money. It is a massive fiduciary duty. And you have to approach it not with big opinions and headline-grabbing forecasts, but by looking at the probability of outcomes and having a probability-weighted forecast. Now, it's very hard to fit the actual nuance of this job into a six-minute CNBC clip. It's even hard to do it 45 minutes with you, Dave. But most economists, especially if they're working with people who manage money, are not looking at one scenario and saying that's exactly what's going to happen. They're looking at a range of possible outcomes and they're developing plans for all of them. Why is this so important with the recession call? Because we all have to evaluate, whether you're an individual, a business, an economist, you have to evaluate the probability, and it's not zero, that we are in something that's much worse than two quarters of negative GDP, which means oh. nothing for most people. Because we are in extraordinary times, and many people just saw the largest increase in interest rates that they've seen in their lifetime, and the largest payment shock that they have or will experience has just occurred. We have to evaluate that possibility. Behind that, there are many global things that are new. For example, you may have heard about you know, the, the major increase in private credit and private equity. These are new asset classes that we haven't seen before. We have geopolitical risk. I've not seen in my, you know, short and youthful lifetime. Um, and we are witnessing supply chain realignments that we've never seen before. So the probability on what economists or would call tail risks. So those things that are not your central scenario, but could happen. Those are higher. We call that fat tails. Um, it's not a, a personal commentary. <laughs> On anybody. It's a fat tail. It means that these things that should be really like, you know, low probability but high impact events, they become something we have to evaluate more clearly. Um, on the flip side, there are other things that have happening that we've never seen before. The amount of government spending that we have seen globally, and I really mean this globally has limited the impact so far of those higher interest rates. So I have to equally assess that the traditional things that would drive a recession may be mitigated by some of these other non-traditional things. And where that nets out on average, where all of these scenarios that are reasonable scenarios net out to on average is two or three quarters of negative GDP. I would be shocked if that's exactly what happens. Right. Um, it's probably none or much worse. Um, but that's typically how economists work when they are forecasting things. The Bank of Canada and all central banks 
are in a serious bind. And that is, um, we have been told for decades that the reason we have stable inflation of 2% is because of central bank credibility. Um, it's possible that the reason that we've had low and stable inflation for so long is because of things that have very little to do with central banks, like demographics, massive digitalization, uh, higher levels of debt, globalization. These have all been powerful forces. And I think central banks, of course, have managed some of the decimal places around 2% inflation. But now what we are seeing is an inflation that is changing. It is becoming much more susceptible and driven to factors that economists call supply side. When I was growing up, uh, the reason that inflation typically permeated the system is because you and I spent too much money. Uh, we went out, we were buying too much, we were too rich. And therefore, if you wanted to slow inflation, you just make us all poor. You increase interest rates, you take money away from us, we spend less, inflation declines. It's very effective. But what happens uh, to central banks when the drivers of inflation aren't you and I anymore? There are things like weather events that destroy farms, cities, floods that squash bridges, tsunamis, earthquakes. What happens if the reason that food prices are climbing is because there's a terrible conflict in Eastern Europe? Um, central banks can't help inflation that's driven by these things. They can, they can stop it from bleeding into something bigger, but their entire existence uh, comes into question when the nature of inflation changes. Now, if you were to map Sometimes, if you ever invite me back for a sixth time, maybe I could do show and tell and we can put charts on the slide, on the thing and everything. But if you're going to look at the OECD decline in inflation you've seen so far, what you'll find is that it matches almost identically to the unwinding of supply chain difficulties that occurred uh, from COVID. We are still in a post-COVID economy, Dave. We are still in a very distorted post-COVID economy. And so it's my opinion, because we can look at data, but there is an overlay of interpretation, that the bulk of the decline that we've seen in inflation so far has been the unwinding of supply-side factors. The average time that it takes for the first rate hike to hit the economy is two years. That's now. We are only now going to see the impact of central bank hikes on inflation next. That is why I think we will probably undershoot inflation briefly and why this is the year that it becomes more challenging. So what central banks have to figure out, and indeed what the entire economic profession is figuring out, is how do we address inflation that comes from disruptions in the Red Seas? How do Can what are Canadians going to do? We can't do anything for that. So Corey tonight has been arguing on the curse of politics that 2% is an inappropriate target in the current circumstances. That things like global conflicts and the impact on supply chains, extreme weather, the energy transition to higher sources mean that core inflation is going to be higher than that. Do you, What do you think about that argument? Well, either I read his stuff or he reads my stuff right. um, is a takeaway. So um, it depends. Because 
it depends on this foundational view that the nature of inflation is changing. Maybe it's not. Maybe we're all myopic. But if the nature of of inflation is changing, what we have to figure out is how much pain are we going to put on the economy to offset it? So there will still be inflation that comes from you and I spending too much. It's not all or nothing. Do we want to create a situation where supply side inflation, let's just pick numbers. Let's say supply side inflation is running at 4%. And again, we're going to pick numbers. Do we then try to create a slow growth environment so that demand side is 0% and we average out to 2? I don't think that makes sense. You get the, the worst of both worlds. You have deflation in one area of the economy and too much inflation in other areas. Or do you say, let's accept that structurally inflation is less interest rate sensitive and we can tolerate slightly higher inflation and we offset it in other ways. So economists really now really big on productivity. So if inflation is running 3%, people are asking for 3% wages. How do you make sure that if a company has to pay 3% wage, that they don't pass those costs on the consumer? And then the consumer is like, well, things cost me more. I need a 4% wage. That's the wage price spiral. So a lot of economists will say something like, well, we could have a 3% target, but we need to make sure we have higher productivity. So if I'm paying someone more, they're producing more as an offset to that. And I think this is the right train of thought because what we need to do now is not think about the target, but think about how do we create an environment that offsets or mitigates the global inflationary pressures that exist. For me, it's let's build supply in Canada. Let's do what we can to build out It's the same stuff, David. It just feels like a broken record. A more competitive environment. So investment wants to come here. Uh, Please, please build some housing supply. Uh, What are we doing to reduce, please don't roll your eyes at me, interprovincial trade barriers? How can we build out supply here at home to offset and mitigate that which we cannot control? This is a much better approach in the next five years than asking the Bank of Canada, who I feel bad for, to raise interest rates so that we don't have global wars or the U.S. doesn't apply tariffs. This is just nonsensical to me, Um, but it calls into question a very profound and necessary institution, which is central banks, and it's an uncomfortable question to ask. So, I'm loath to admit this, but with the dizzying pace of digital advancement wreaking havoc on the aging brain of Hurley, I find myself looking for a way to mentally categorize it all. Some simple nomenclature that lends a little context to all the tech talk. So, I'm dubbing these next few weeks of messaging from our presenting sponsor, TELUS, now, nearly now, and next. We kicked it off last week how TELUS has made it their mission to continually invest in and innovate their networks. So we have the bedrock connectivity that'll make now, nearly now, and next-gen automation work across so many industries. If you were paying attention, you might remember I did a drive-by mention of the Fed's promise of an all-EV future. Let's explore that a little more. Here's the shorthand. Internal combustion engines are going to be gonzo, replaced by electric vehicles by 2035. A relatively short 11 years, but a long road to get there. 
Think of the infrastructure required to support a nation of EV drivers, a seamlessly interconnected 5G network of charging stations, efficiently exchanging data and communicating with the power grid intelligently without straining it so that we all get the most convenient, sustainable and reliable charging experience. See, I told you there was the specter of a lot of tech talk, but as much as it all might seem, it's nearly now, Hurley Burleyites. None of it happens, though, without continual investment in our world-class networks. TELUS has been making those investments. I've already talked about their recent partnerships with Jolt and Flow to uptick the accessibility and quality of EV chargers across Canada. But let's not understate it. Far more investment is required if all of us are getting behind an EV wheel by 2035. For that to happen, we need regulatory conditions that continue to make those investments make sense. And I haven't even mentioned the connectivity required to make the self-driving thing a reality. Autonomous vehicles? We'll talk about that next. But it's all coming to a head quickly, isn't it? Because I saw you on BNN, and if I was to paraphrase you, you basically said that over the course of the next year, the Bank of Canada is going to have to choose between hitting 2% inflation and killing the economy or declaring victory on inflation short of 2% and letting the, and reducing rates and letting the economy grow. Yeah, so I think the Bank of Canada and all central banks, including the Federal Reserve and the ECB, already chose to... Well, they, these are people, right, Dave? Like these, these are people who are doing the best they can with their mandate. So we have to be careful. It's people doing their job. But the Bank of Canada already explained to us that we had to have a hit to demand, as they put it, uh, and that a recession was a possibility but necessary in order to bring inflation down. There are many economists who don't agree that that was necessary, including myself, that inflation would have come down and we didn't need that extent of tightening. I think that a lot of central banks are now trying to have their cake and eat it too and engineer this soft landing by now because every central bank globally has now said there's no more rate hikes. The next move is going to be a cut. Um, the, the Federal Reserve in the United States has effectively indicated this very clearly. The ECB has said it. Even emerging markets, the Bank of Korea, a whole range of emerging markets are already cutting interest rates. And the goal is, well, we haven't hit that technical recession yet. Maybe we can prevent it from happening. But it's really hard. It's like they're trying to turn the ship uh, but it takes a very it takes years for these interest rate hikes to move through the system. So, what the Bank of Canada is probably going to do this year is cut interest rates. But it's likely going to be too late, uh, in my opinion. By cutting interest rates, however, in 2024, what they can do is shorten the length of the recession, uh, maybe make it slightly less severe, uh, and get us out faster on the other side. How can they make a decision like you're asking them to make, which is to back off their inflation target? Isn't that their only mandate? I know that there's some language that was added to their mandate, yeah. but it seemed to be what judges would call obiter dicta, not actual uh, core to the mandate. No one told me there was Latin in this interview. <laughs> you got to start putting that in the invite. I just like to um, remind people I went to law school every once in a while. Yeah, it's a good little reminder. Um sure. So the Bank of Canada does a lot of things, okay? They do a lot of uh, oversight. They're very instrumental in the 
financial plumbing of the system. Uh, but this is not a Bank of Canada problem. This is a global central bank problem. And it's particularly a problem if you're a single mandate central bank. So a reminder, we've got, you know, those memes, you had one job, um, <laughs> inflation. And remember, the, the target band is actually 1% to 3%. With two percent being the midpoint, even I forget that sometimes. Like two percent, it's one to three. Um, the Federal Reserve has two mandates: price stability and full employment. So the Federal Reserve has a lot more optionality this year if the unemployment rate starts to rise, to say, "Oh, well, we're biasing ourselves towards this side of the mandate." And if you're a financial market watcher, or if you you know watch your investments if you have them, you would have seen that in November and December particularly in December, we had a massive uh, move in the stock market and people were partying and it was called the pivot party. The pivot party because the Federal Reserve basically I, started I, talking. I wasn't, in, I wasn't invited. I missed oh, that we were, event. We yeah. were all invited through our portfolios or okay. your retirement funds or any sort of, anything you owned in December did better. Every single asset class. Um, and effectively, it was the central bank saying, well, in the United States, we can focus more on the downsides to growth. This is more difficult for the ECB. It's more difficult for the Bank of Canada. And so they, we know that central banks are very actively trying to figure out what is the best approach. But they have to be cautious because there is still the perception, rightly or wrongly, that inflation expectations are really tied to central bank policy. Now, I... I and everybody else, who cares what I, my opinion is, but just about everyone recognizes that inflation expectations are really important components of prices. Like if we just get stuck, if every year prices go up by 5%, well, 2% raise isn't going to cut it anymore. Um, and whether people watch economics or not, almost every Canadian expects a 2% raise to keep up with inflation. This is a, a wonderful thing that central banks did. Um, in this context, if you suddenly say 3%, you have to be cautious that the population does not then say, okay, well, I need a 3% raise every year because it has knock-on effects through the whole system. Um, so the, the, you have to balance both sides of that. But as you said, it's coming to a head because inflation has been above 2% for years and Canadians and Americans and Europeans have about had it. They've gone through a massive price shock. And can we just pause here for a second and admit how crazy it is that we talk about inflation in year-over-year -year terms? Because when people say 2% inflation, uh, what they're saying is, what is the price of cauliflower today versus January of 2023? What was the price of a car today versus in 2023? Canadians don't operate like that. I don't know what the price of everything I buy was in January of last year, but you know what Canadians do know? what they were paying for things before COVID versus what they're paying for them now. And that's massive, right? Like if you, you probably know this, but most Canadians go to the grocery store with a budget, yeah. not a list. Exactly. Right? right. Exactly. It's not, it's not, here's what I need. I'll go get it. It's here's what I have. What can I get? Yeah. And so they notice when that's a lighter bag. Of, right? of course. I mean, you just, you just have to go, we don't run policy like this, but sometimes I wish other economists spent more time on like Facebook mom groups or on the 
TikTok, the TikTok algos, um, to see how much food insecurity has become problematic. And of course it has, because if you look at headline consumer price index basket, which doesn't even represent individual Canadians, it'll tell you that relative to the month before COVID hit, total prices in the country are up 16%, but food is up 23%. And a lot of items like eggs are up more than that. Eggs are up 30% in four years. Who's not noticing that? What about energy costs? Energy costs are up 24% since right before COVID. Housing, we all talk about the housing market. The housing market, price of a home is up 30% since January of 2020. It's up 77% in the last 10 years. So if you take a step back and we're thinking about, oh, we got 2% inflation, we've solved it. We're not going back to pre-COVID prices. We're going to see prices continue to rise just by less. And this is, I think, what's so, why Canada... So you're basically saying that the inflation of the last two or three years has resulted in a permanent reduction of the standard of living of Canadians. Correct. It is a permanent reduction price level shock. This is the way that economists would think about it. So here's the problem though. That increase was not felt evenly. If you bought a home 12 years ago, you are not facing the same shock level as someone who doesn't have a home or who bought it three years ago. If you have a larger share of your income to food, you are feeling that relative shock. So lower income Canadians are feeling that shock much larger. So I genuinely feel as though in the 90s and 2000s, up until four years ago, a lot of our concept of the economic divides in this country and therefore a lot of our policies were really based on income. Are you wealthy or not? How much income are you making? I mean, that's the the foundation of most of the policies in this country. But we have to shift our thinking because it's no longer about just your income. It's where are you in this cost shock? And it's younger Canadians that have felt the cost shock so disproportionately. And yet they get told, they get told, oh, uh, you shouldn't have bought that house. Oh, you shouldn't have over-levered. But they have been, the younger generation of Canadians and the lower income have been so disproportionately hit by this permanent price level increase um, that we need to completely change the way that we think about economic class in this country. Age-based rather than income-based? No, not age-based, cost-based. So there are regions in this country that have experienced it larger as well. Like long before we experienced this, one of the amusing things to me was that we would tend to think about incomes on the aggregate basis. Well, we all know that Canada has some of the most expensive cities in the world. Not sure I won a prize for that one. Um, And your income in Moose Jaw is a different indicator of your economic wealth or circumstance than it is in Toronto. I was looking at some fantastic data from Statistics Canada. They asked Canadians, are you lower class, middle class, or upper class? You know what proportion of Canadians said that they were in the middle class? 96%. 
felt they were in the middle class. If you ask those with over $200,000 in income, 46% said they were in the middle class. And you know what? If they live in Toronto in the past three years, one might understand where they're coming to that conclusion. You so, know, if you if you if the polling company gave people an option below middle class that wasn't as loaded as lower class, like say working class, you would have found a lot of people opt for that. Very fair. But what are these? What are what are the ways that we describe Canadian economic circumstances? They have to really evolve. Where are you in the country? What are food costs where you are? Because I'm pretty sure those in the northern regions are suffering disproportionately on food price increases. They have for years. And it really comes back to, are you a renter? Do you have a mortgage? Or do you own your home outright? This will be a generational divide that changes everybody's economic circumstance and particularly with housing we know that there are social components to being able to own your home be in a school district not be afraid of getting kicked out and we have so fundamentally damaged that in this country i hope i hope we can get back to affordable housing in my lifetime but i worry about that i'll share something personal with you i have two boys and my husband and I think about how we can set them up for the future. I think we spend infinitely more time thinking about creating some sort of setup for them so that they can buy housing than we do the RESP. And that's from a point of extreme privilege because many, many households, the vast majority will not be able to set their children up for that. No. If your parents didn't own, you're probably screwed, right? Yeah. I hope not. I hope not. But let's be real about the economic circumstances that we're in. So let me tell you about the best weather headline that ever appeared in a newspaper. It was years ago, during one of those numbing polar episodes where Celsius and Fahrenheit actually meet. Which, by the way, is minus 40 degrees. Fun fact. Anyway, it was that cold. And of course, when it's that cold, it's the main news story everywhere. And headline writers lay it on thick. The giant Vancouver Sun headline was Burr. The Ottawa Citizens was cold. And of course, there were several lame efforts involving Jack Frost and the Mercury. But the Toronto Stars was just outstanding. In huge black type on page one, it asked, Cold, eh? Utter simplicity. The most Canadian headline ever written. Well, anyway, it's cold these days, eh? Especially out west. Last week, it was minus 45.3 Celsius in Edmonton. That's just about minus 50 Fahrenheit. Cold that deep makes normal activity extraordinarily difficult. And yet, CN, our sponsor, shrugged and kept the trains running. CN has more than a century of experience operating in Canadian winters and knows a thing or two about coping. In CN parlance, minus 44 degrees is, quote, tier three cold, unquote, and that means serious precautions. Train length must be cut dramatically once Tier 3 has been passed. To give you an idea, at minus 25, a conventional CN freight train can be 7,000 feet long. At minus 44, maximum length is much shorter, 4,500 feet. 
That's because the most serious assault by cold is on a train's air brakes. Longer trains are harder to stop. Air hoses become brittle. CN has to install special cars at regular intervals to boost pressure. Cold also poses a serious threat to steel wheels and tracks. Ice granules, believe it or not, can damage metal. So constant monitoring with special sensors is vital. And then there's the low-tech job of keeping tracks clear of ice and snow, which CN does every winter, no matter how severe, because cargo has to move, and it has to move on time. This is Canada. Winter is life, eh? Whining and excuses. Just don't cut it. Okay. I want to switch to uh, something that's highly theoretical, but I want to see if we can make it real, because I'm trying to understand what matters and what doesn't about fiscal policy. Okay. Okay. One of the pieces of advice the government is getting from business, loudly from the Council of Chief Executives um, and from the opposition, is that it needs to reduce its deficit and rein in its spending. And I want you to try to explain this. What role does fiscal policy and deficit financing play in how the economy performs? Well, there's entire university courses on this one, Dave, so I'm not sure we can... Get no, it you're all pithy. Done. You're pithy. I'm pithy. Put that on my gravestone. <laughs> she was pithy. Um, okay, so let me give you my perspective as someone who's involved with um, bond trading. So this is just one perspective on this. There are many. Um, I sit right now, uh, you can't see it, but behind your window is a variety of Bloomberg screens as to how the markets are trading today. Yep. And uh, we're constantly thinking about which bonds we're going to buy. You can buy a corporate bond, you can buy a sovereign bond. Uh, effectively, what you do is you lend an entity money yep. and you say, give it back to me at a certain point in time. So if it's a two-year bond, give it back to me in two years and I'm going to charge you X interest on it. Um, and uh, anyone can buy these. Now, the way sovereign bonds work is exactly the same. The government goes out to the world and says, please lend us money. And the world says, sounds like a good investment. You're likely to pay us back. Uh, here's your money. Give it back to me at this time and uh, pay me this interest on it. Uh, hilariously, when uh, governments, particularly uh North American governments uh, pay people back. They're usually just issuing new bonds. So it's sure. like um, when my brother asks me for money, then I say, give it back to me. He gives it back to me by going to my other brother um, and asking him for cash. So, you know, that's how it works. Um, and so there's two things happening is we, we get that cash, but we have to pay an interest rate on it. And that interest rate is uh, often a function of our domestic interest rates. So that's relevant. Um, but it can also be a function of what people who are lending to us feel is the right price or cost. So the United States ran into some trouble last year because, especially in the fall, they said, oh, everyone always wants to lend to us. Like, we're going to borrow some money. And in one particular auction, the global market said, uh, you, guys, you guys got some stuff going on. Uh, we're not so interested, actually, in lending to you. Um, so you could see in the market that in real time, that interest rate was going up, going up, going up until someone said, now that's a good deal. Just like you, uh, Dave, I'm not sure I would lend you money at 2%, but if you said I'll give you 10%, I'd say, oh, that's, that's worth the risk. 
you know, yeah, that's I'm, how a, I'm a bad risk at any rate. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. There's probably there's a, a rate for everybody. As I say to my husband, <laughs> there's, there's a there's a price for everything. In the so world. is the current deficit a drag on our economy? So here's why it works. Now you told me to go theoretical, and I told you it was a university class. So now you got to sit through it, Dave. Okay. All right. So here's what happens. Um, a, you have to have access to these funds from the global market, but second, you have to pay the interest on it. Yeah. Now, the interest rate is rising, and therefore, when we take in money, we have to apportion a certain amount out to pay for that instead of going to other programs. Now, yeah. in the 1990s, we ran into a problem because that number was up near 30%. So if we took in $100, we were paying 30% on interest. It just dwarfed our ability to actually invest. I need to check the number, but we're still in the low teens right now. So I, I need to check the number. I don't have it off the top of my head. So we are not nearly in that situation. The second issue is, do you reach a point where you don't, you're no longer credit worthy and you can't borrow money? And if you can't borrow money, that means you have to generate it internally. And that's through tax revenue, effectively. Now, this is where I think that we should be more cautious about saying the government can't borrow money because Canada, um, who people lend money to is always a relative decision. Okay. I'm talking about being a bond trader. If we have a bond trader who's sitting in London. He's looking at Canada relative to other countries in the world. So there's a lot of focus on Canada being a triple A or triple A. Like it's nice, but if we got downgraded to double A, I mean, that would sting. I'm like, I got A pluses. Okay. I, I like getting A pluses on things. If I get an A minus, I may be a little like, oh. Um, but would it change our ability to borrow? Probably not at all. In fact, the US. A solid B. You're looking at a solid B. B. And yeah. you did all right. You did all right, yeah. Dave. So look, <laughs> if you look at the United States, they've been downgraded by two rating agencies. And for one day, it's interesting. And you might see a little bit of wiggle in the lines, but it doesn't make a material difference. So. I would really prefer that from the logistical component of the conversation, okay, nobody likes the idea of carrying debt, but governments don't operate like households. So when people say, we really have to pull back on spending because, you know, people won't lend to us, I don't see any evidence of that in the market because everything is a relative trade and everybody is spending. What we do need to be cautious of is two things. One what are we spending on? If we are going to spend on supply, so if we're going to say we're going to build houses, we're going to tear down barriers, we're going to uh, build out employment opportunities, we're going to make sure that we have policies that increase our labor force appropriately, that would be deflationary, Dave. That would actually push prices down. It would not hurt us, it would help us. If we're going to hand out checks, that's inflationary. And this is where the global bond market is going to pay attention. The global bond market is going to be far more interested on what we're spending on than how much we're spending on in total. So dental care and pharmacare are inflationary, but the uh, tax incentives that the government uh, announced in its last budget for clean energy are not inflationary. I don't, are you baiting me? I don't know the, can you say that again? I missed it. No, I'm just trying, I'm actually just trying to okay. make tangible what you said. So, okay. so consumption, I think of dental care as a government program. Yeah, so I'm not sure that I would necessarily say that's inflationary if it does things like increase productivity and give us access to a system that we didn't have before. I'm okay. really much more concerned about things like, um, you know, 
providing um yeah, like blanket checks, checks that go out. Those are, those are more problematic money right into. But again, Dave, it's really hard because there are certain people who are going to require significant support as we ramp up these things. There's going to be a much larger segment of Canadians that have food insecurity. No economist with a heart is going to say, oh, don't give out checks for people for food insecurity. That makes no sense. We're running a country. Are we trying to have an optimal number on a screen or are we trying to do what's best for Canadians? So you have to measure that short-term versus long-term that exists in the system. But the we second have a thing- school food program, by the way. I agree with you. The second thing that we need to be aware of is how government spending changes the nature of our economy. And this, I think we need to keep a very close eye on because historically governments spent in bad times and pulled back in good times. But a large chunk of the job growth in our country is coming from the government sector. This is happening globally, by the way. This is not just a Canadian issue. And I am just going to say what the statistics say, okay? I'm just going to say what the data says. Historically, government spending is less productive has lower productivity ratings than private sector spending. I'm not saying that someone who's sitting in Ottawa is not working as hard as someone who's sitting on, I don't know, Bay Street in Toronto. But in general, the types of spending had lower productivity numbers. So if we just say governments should go out and spend a lot because the bond market will keep lending to them because Canada is still an attractive investment and we grow government as a size of our economy, it can be very distorting and change the sectors that exist within the system. So there's a line between the two. Now I know Dave, you always want me to say, well, this is good and this is bad and like check mark here and X on this one. Um, but maybe we need somebody to say like, there is no magic formula, just decreasing the deficit is not going to help Canadians and it's not necessarily going to bring down inflation and just spending is not going to necessarily hurt help Canadians. It's what you spend on how you think about short-term, medium and long-term. That may be not a satisfying answer to you, Dave, but it's always harder in practice. And when we come up with these artificial binary outcomes, I don't think we're doing Canadians any, any favors. Okay. Well, I'm never satisfied. So let me come back at this one more time which is to say that the, I don't know what they're called, the Council of Chief Executives, Goldie Hyder's operation there, they say that reducing the deficit would unlock the Canadian economy and let the Canadian economy surge. Do you see any reason to believe that reducing the deficit from, say, $50 billion annually to $25 billion annually would have an impact on economic growth? So... Um I think that Goldie Hyder is an important voice and I'm a big fan of his. What you're saying to me is like saying, Francis, if you go for a walk, it'll change your life. What's happening on the walk? Do I, uh, do I meet Justin Timberlake? Cause that would change my life. <laughs> do I fall into a ditch and break my ankle? Like, so why, how are we reducing the deficit and why are we reducing the deficit and what are we doing? That is, that is what changes the Canadian economy. It's not the number. It's not debt to GDP that changes things. It's what the money is being used for. And I agree. If we are just trying to give people more money in their pockets, a good example is housing. Let's just keep housing as an example. So right now, Canadians cannot afford homes if they don't have one, um, or if their mortgage rate went up. If we said, oh, 
if you can't afford a home right now, here's a $5,000 towards your down payment. What would that do? It would just increase demand for housing. And then there'd be more bidders and then prices would go up. That would not be a good policy. That would be an inflationary way to spend. If we took that $5,000 per person that we were going to send out and we built more homes, I understand that there's jurisdiction things, that would actually be deflationary. We would bring down the costs by building up more supply so we had fewer bidders for each home. So it's exactly the same amount of money. Some of it in one way it's used as inflationary, one way is deflationary. We have to move away from this idea that a dollar of government spending has the equivalent amount of impact and it can be good and it can be bad. What are you going to spend it on? Far more important than we have to cut the deficit or we have to grow the deficit. It's awfully difficult to find the nuance between these things because so many things are like everything gets framed that way. So childcare got framed as an economic productivity measure. You mentioned dental care could conceivably be an economic productivity measure. Doesn't that laxness give governments the latitude to define everything as a productivity related investment? For sure. Absolutely. They can fix. There's always a way that you can do that. Um, they that's why they have economic advisors that's why they bring in private sector advisors i heard that but but at the end of the day dave here's the issue is that we we have economies that are sensitive to government spending that have to be managed really well the economics is hard. It's become a lot harder in the last four years. Even economists are literally rewriting textbooks. Did you see the Bank of Canada is throwing out its two models that it's used since inception and launching a new model in 2025? It's because everyone is realizing that the way that our economies run is very different. And meanwhile, we are our politicians are asked to sell us a story. My ask is, can we just not be so binary that it has to be up or down? And let's say you were advocating for lowering the deficit. Um, You should be aware that if that were your policy and you lowered the deficit, you could hurt the economy doing that too. So let's just be more sophisticated about our approach. Maybe that's a pipe dream. I don't know. So that doesn't take you to a fiscal anchor, does it? Because that's too blunt. Um, and, And you are really arguing for a different approach to accounting here. Fiscal anchors are, are a good way to kind of come at it. I don't think debt to GDP is wrong. The way that I would do it is so that, okay, if I wanted to do what's best for Canadians, which I'm not sure is always what is easy to sell, okay, I would maintain that or I would look at the fiscal anchor as does Canada remain one of the most attractive markets for global investors in the world. Debt to GDP is one way to look at that. So I would be monitoring. Sorry, can I interrupt you, Francis, and just ask you, because you understand the psychology of investors. Do they look at that metric? Yes, but in, in combination with others. So why did the U.S. get downgraded last year from AAA? Because they kept going into debt ceiling debates and risks of shutdowns. When global bond investors are looking at where they should invest, it is an entire dashboard. It is what interest rate are they getting? What is the geopolitical 
environment. As much as you've got a very successful podcast off of the interesting dynamics that happen in Canadian politics, they're gosh down boring for the rest of the world, okay? Like, the rest of the world's like, Canada, boring, good investment. Our international audience is small, but we're working in it. Yeah, well, I'm excited for you on that one. And their politics are likely more dramatic than yours. I wasn't thinking about bond investors, Francis. I was thinking about capital investors. I was thinking about people that might want to build a plant or expand their operations. Or Are they looking at the government's fiscal situation? Probably much less than one would think. What are they looking at? Costs. Cost of labor, cost of capital. Are they getting any support from the government's? that come through. And I've, I've said this for years to our governments uh, and to you. If our housing crisis is not solved, it's going to be very hard to get people to come build companies here because people want wages so that they could live. They just want to basically live. Just want a house and some food. Uh, and they're going to ask for wages that are too expensive relative to where they could get labor around the rest of the world, especially in this more remote environment. So, you know, we do need to attract investment. My sense is if we grew the deficit by having very business-friendly programs that brought in new big corporations to Canada and gave jobs, that very few people would be looking at that and say, you know, oh, we we should be cutting the deficit to help unlock Canada. Cool. Okay. We're running out of time, and I really want to touch on something I don't understand at all, and it requires some understanding of uh, what's happening in supply and demand. It has to do with the housing issue, which you've been talking about, and immigration. Why doesn't Canada have enough skilled tradespeople to build houses in Canada? Why is this something that needs to be solved through immigration or temporary foreign workers? Um, like I, in my neighborhood, I see so many able-bodied young men driving Ubers or delivering food. Surely that doesn't pay as well as construction work does. Why are we having trouble getting people to do construction? Um, I don't know the answer to that. And I think there are some really strong housing economists like Mike Moffat who have good sense of what's happening there. Um, but in my conversations, it usually comes back to whose jurisdiction is this? Um, economists have been pleading for years for more supply, but the issue came to a head a little bit in the last couple of years because housing was often viewed as the Bank of Canada's fault. I remember an interview on uh, your favorite channel, BNN, uh, where a BNN interviewer said to Governor Polaz, you created this problem. You're the candy man, um, which I always thought was humorous. Yeah. Um, and so there was this general view that it was a demand issue, that interest rates were too low, and we were attracting... Stephen Polos mixes it with love and makes the world go around. He's got some great metaphors. They're usually food-based, and I'm, I'm a fan of that. I like that. Um, so that was the view. And yet Governor Macklem raised rates the fastest in basically modern economic history, uh, which should have crushed the housing market. And the housing market kind of like shrugged it off. There is no better example that our housing market crisis is a supply side issue than this. Right. Um, and so this, the idea that 
there's nowhere else to hide now than knowing we have to build supply. But for the past several years, I think whenever housing experts have asked for support in this, various level of government have passed the buck or said, this is not it. There's also a ton of regionally specific issues that are occurring. But the feedback that I generally hear from industry is that this is less of a labor shortage problem and more of a regulatory problem. My hope is that the idea that this is a generational economic and social crisis will start to bubble to the surface. And again, I am no politics expert, uh, but it seems that it is bubbling to the surface much more right now um, than it has in the past few years when it was easy to pass the buck to the Bank of Canada. The immigration issue is very challenging, Dave, from an economist point of view, because uh, I remember in 2018, 2019, I had a, a chart in my chart pack and it proudly, I would go all over the world. I'd go to Asia, I would go to the US, I'd go to Europe and I would say, the solution to much of what ails us is population growth and immigration is one way to get there. And I'm a proud Canadian and we have the fastest population growth in the OECD. Uh, and then we took a good thing and we increased it so much that it became an economic challenge. So when you're an economist and you're talking about this, you get stuck in this position where we, you say, yes, we need that. But we have to sort of be careful about the extent to which we do it. And this is so basic, right? Like if I invite a bunch of people over to my house for a dinner party, I make sure that I have enough chairs. I make sure that I have enough appetizers. I mean, if you're coming, I make sure I got enough beers for you, Dave. Like, you know. But what if you are issuing the invitations, but somebody else is throwing the party and you want to look good. So you invite a lot of people and the other people have to fucking feed them. Yeah. So who bears the who bears the the burden of that? Um, but clearly, there's been a significant lack of coordination, um, and economists have been talking about this problem for two years. Now it seems like we're starting to think about it. But again, it's not black and white because um, one of the only reasons we've been able to sort of mitigate the economic pain so far has been because of. Um, increased um, immigration. I mean, the fertility rate in Canada is 1.3. 1.3. It should be closer to 2.1 for replacement rate. And it's really hard to get, um, it's really hard to get people to have more babies. I get it. It's freaking exhausting. Um, <laughs> and, and we don't, and it's expensive. So we're trying to find this balance between the two. And I know, I know I'm supposed to come on here and say, oh, this is the exact number and this is the policy approach and this is the good headline. It's, it's somewhere between where we are and where we were in terms of where we need to be next. And it absolutely, um, you know, the invitees need to coordinate with the chefs. Right. Okay, I have one last question for you, and it's outside of your sweet spot, because you've told me you're not a policy economist and you're not very political. But everything you've told me tells me that Trudeau is going to lose the next election. The economic forecast that you've given me for the next year um, tells me that they're going to lose the election because the economic turnaround is not going to happen in time for people to feel it prior to the next election. So if I was running the Trudeau campaign, which I am not, of course, but if I was running the Trudeau campaign, I would be storming around the Langevin block, uh, 
throwing things and screaming, demanding an out-of-the-box idea that got the government back in control of the economic narrative. Do you have any idea what that could be? No, of course not. I don't know anything that goes on in Ottawa. Um, but what is something could the government you, could, could do? Tell you, I could tell you what I, as an individual citizen yeah, and economist, would like. Sure, do it. Um, I would like somebody somewhere to say... We've just experienced the biggest cost shock of a generation and it's not fair and it hurt these groups in particular. We can't undo it and costs are not going back to 2019, but we can help. And here are the ideas to help. And some of them are going to be, if you're in this group, you get a check for this. And some of them are going to be, we're going to build all of this stuff. And guess what? That building is going to bring costs down. I don't know that we have been sufficiently honest. And I, I think the economists also have a part in this too, because they go on TV. We go on TV. I go on TV. And oh, inflation's come down from 8.1 to 3.4%. Like, haha. But can we just acknowledge that we're going through a major economic transformation? And we talk a lot about how scarring COVID was for, for children, for the elderly, for all of us. Let's talk about how economically scarring it was, recognize it and build a plan to, you know, build a plan to make it better. And it starts with just being honest about sort of the mess that we're in. That's what I'd like. That sounds great. That sounds, by the way, like really good political advice. I, I know nothing. I've got laundry and charts to make. But sometimes just talking as an ordinary person sounds is better political advice than people thinking about politics all the time. You know, you all actually right. nailed, you actually kind of nailed it. Francis, th <clears throat> thank you for giving your time to us. Oh, it's Please a come back. Anytime you have something you want to say or get off your chest, please call <laughs> us and come on the show and do it. I just love talking to you about the economy. And I think that people learn a lot every time you do it. So thank you. Well, it's honestly an honor to be on your show. People talk to me about it all the time. Uh, I really take it seriously. I'm grateful to be here. Great. Thanks. All right. I got to thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS, and our sponsor, CN. Thanks, everybody who watched or listened to this podcast. We'll be back next week with more of the Curse of... More of the Hurley Burley. We'll be back next week with... What show am I doing? We'll be back next week with more of the Hurley Burley. Thank you, Francis Donald. See you again soon. Go Habs, by the way.